right. Hello and welcome to the Peculiar Brothers podcast. This is our first ever episode and we're going to get right into things. But first, I wanted to talk to Jake and Chance about motivations for why they wanted to do this podcast. Uh, my name is Cooper. You'll probably hear my brothers refer to me as Coop sometimes. And it's the three of us, brothers that wanted to make a podcast, talking about our lives, our experiences, things we enjoy, things we find interesting. Something we all came together and said, let's get on, let's make a podcast, let's tell other people about these things. So let's start with Jake. Jake, what was your motivation for wanting to be on the podcast and make sure it's it's happening? Well, two main reasons for me are, one... To sort of leave kind of an oral history for my kids, grandkids, our, you know, our family, our, our posterity collectively. I feel like there are a number of stories that we could share about our shared experiences as brothers or even just individually that it would be nice to document in an oral history kind of way so that they could hear our voices, hear the emotion that we have when we share the stories and leave sort of a legacy in that way. The other big reason for me personally was I think that we've had some pretty neat experiences and opportunities in our lives, both collectively and individually, that might be interesting for other people to hear about. So I figured, why not make a podcast? Something that we can leave for our our families, but also something that maybe will bring some joy and entertainment to other people. And it was your idea to name it Peculiar Brothers. Why is that? Good question. After toying around with a couple of different ideas, I just think that it's a peculiar set of circumstances that have brought the three of us to where we are today, having grown up, for lack of a better term, pretty close to dirt poor on a very small cattle ranch. And the way that we got from A to B, I think is just very, very unique. We've we've lived all over the country, all over the world. We speak several languages among the three of us. So we are very peculiar brothers. And so I thought that was an apt name. All right. And Chance, you agreed to hop on. Why Why did you want to participate and, and put in your two cents? I think my reasons very much mirror what Jake was talking about. For one, it's it's nice for family and friends to be able to look into our lives and see a little bit how in a lot of ways we're very similar, but in other ways we're also three very distinct and different people, even though we were all more or less raised the exact same way. I think it's really interesting to see the the different paths we ended up taking, as well as I really enjoy sharing the things that I am passionate about. I, I find that I am a person that doesn't really do the same thing month to month. I have a hard time really sticking with one hobby or passion, if you will, for say a year at a time, but I have many things that I'm really passionate about just kind of depending on the different, like on a month to month basis. So it's, to me, it'll be interesting to see if anyone listening to this says that they're kind of the same way because I haven't really met anyone else like that in my experience so far. So just, yeah, kind of like Jake said, the the oral history aspect is really nice, but also just being able to, to give my two cents on things that I maybe wouldn't normally just by my own efforts. 
Awesome. Thanks, Chance. And and I have many of the same motivations. I want family right now as soon as we publish this, but in 10 years, 20 years, grandkids maybe, to be able to look back and have more of an in-depth look at, at who I am, who we are, and even to go outside and try some of the things we talk about or go to the store, go online and buy some of these movies and video games we enjoy and and just have more of a look at who we are and who I am uh, compared to maybe what I got with ancestors that came before me. And a lot like Chance said, I, I do like sharing my passions. And if I turn someone on to something that then they end up really enjoying, or I teach someone something that then really helps them out in life, I get a lot of joy out of that. So I think a podcast is a great format for that. Mm, I agree. When we talk about the Peculiar Brothers podcast, um, we're going to have some recurring segments each each week, each time we do a recording. That's going to start off with awesome experiences. That's talking about experiences we've had in life that were different, that were revolutionary, that took us out of our comfort zone, or that just we look back and say, that was awesome or completely new for me. Then each week we're going to talk about high honors. This is more where we talk about things that we really enjoy, things that as we've gone through life, these things rise to the top in terms of our favorite things, things we enjoy, activities. It's going to be very open, but things that when others look back, it's not going to be hard to figure out what we enjoyed and and what we placed high on our list. Uh, This third segment is going to be, I really recommend And this is where we're persuading the listener to go out and try something, something that we tried or did that we found fulfilling or enjoyable or fun or helpful. And then finally, this weird week, that's going to be our weekly chance to say, hey, this is what happened in my personal life, my professional life, my family life in the last week as as a very brief journal. So I think we're going to launch right into it. And I'm going to lead things off, um, since I'm kind of spearheading this episode, talking about my awesome experience. And that awesome experience was the first time I went to Olympic National Park and the first time I went to the Ho Rainforest. So this occurred, I was on the interview trail. I'm a physician. So as someone is finishing medical school, they go out and they interview at different residency positions. So even after you graduate from med school, you go to residency for three to eight years in your specialty, whether that's pediatrics, surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And while I was in Washington on some of these interviews, I went to the Olympic National Park and the thing that was just an awesome, mind-blowing experience for me was going to the Ho Rainforest. I'd been in the high desert before in the western U.S. I'd been to what's called the Piney Woods of Texas, where it's thick and humid. I've been in alpine areas. I've been in coastal areas. But this is the first time I'd been in a rainforest, and it was like I woke up after sleeping in my Ford Explorer in a whole different world, unlike any that I'd ever been in before. The closest thing I could compare it to was waking up and all of a sudden being in a movie or being in Jurassic Park. Mosses, 
ferns, humidity. I had just never been in a rainforest or anything close to it before. And as I went on some small hikes, it really was like being in a whole new world. And that that sense of adventure was just awesome for me. And Coop, this was in Washington State. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. On the Olympic Peninsula. So if you're in if you're in Seattle, Seattle, Tacoma kind of metro area, you go out onto the Olympic Peninsula. And it's kind of hard to get to. You either have to take ferries from the cities or drive around and down and up onto the Olympic Peninsula. So if you look north from the Olympic Peninsula, you're looking across the Strait of Juan de Fuca into Canada. And if you look west, it's the Pacific Ocean. Gotcha. So that makes that makes sense why you've got a rainforest in the in the U.S. Yeah. And that's what was really cool about this Olympic Peninsula in general is in one several hour kind of round trip loop, you go from islands to Pacific coast to Alpine areas to deciduous forest areas like your classic Pacific Northwest heavy forest. And then if you drive in inland, all of a sudden there's a rainforest. It was a really awesome place to visit. Now, Cooper, I've never had any experience in a rainforest. The closest thing I've come to was some, do- some mm-hmm. one, one aquarium I went to one time had like a rainforest section. And so they, they tried their best to replicate. All, all it really felt like to me was unbelievable humidity. But what I was curious about when, when you're there... Was there a lot of like different wildlife or or insects or snakes or anything to the point where like even you got nervous about it? Because that's something I'd always heard about rainforests is just you never know what you're going to step on or, or walk underneath. Yeah, so I was there in in the late fall. So even though it was the rainforest, it was relatively cold for the rainforest. So there was not much in the way of lizards or snakes and the bugs were pretty well controlled, but yeah, it was relatively cold. So I didn't have to worry about that. Um, but the interesting thing about being in the rainforest, like you said, the humidity is it's just a place on earth that water is not a limiting factor. So then things like sunlight and things like air movement and all these other things become much more important. And uh, I stepped off the trail at the visitor center, and there was a herd of um, elk. There's a subspecies of elk that live on the Olympic Peninsula, and just part of the native wildlife, there was just this herd of elk, completely different than the type of elk I grew up being around, more in the mountains and desert. Here's rainforest elk. Hmm. All right, so let's move on. Chance's awesome experience, if you're ready, Chance. Yeah, I think so. He's going to tell us about how uh, his experience on the streets of Berlin, Germany. Now, I did just a little bit of research. So Berlin is the capital of Germany. It's the largest city in Germany by both its area, like square miles, and the population. If you take Berlin proper, just the city of Berlin no surrounding cities. It's 3.83, sorry, 3.85 million people 
which makes it the most populous city in the European Union, the EU. And then if you take Berlin-Brandenburg, the larger metro area, it's 6.2 million people, which in the U.S., it's comparable to Washington, D.C. metro area, the Philadelphia metro area, or the Atlanta metropolitan area. And for comparison, the big city where we grew up, that would be the Salt Lake, Provo, Ogden metropolitan area. That's only 2.7 million people spread out over a rather big area. So tell us about it, Chance. Yeah, so the I, I appreciate the research into it because I actually wasn't sure at the time. I, I was there clear back in 2012, so it's been a long time now, but at the time for it, it takes a little bit of preface to understand why I would choose this as you know the experience I wanted to talk about because as we've already alluded to we we grew up in a in a small farm town so to give you a sense of what that's like for maybe when you're not if you're not familiar with what that's like you know every single person on your street you know whose dogs belong to who and you know like if the horses get out across the street somewhere, you know whose horses they are and you can even go and, and put them back in and it's just a normal day in the life. You know, I don't know the exact population at the time, but where where we grew up when we were growing up there, I would say our, our little town had somewhere in the ballpark of 200 people in it total. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe you guys could correct me on that, but very, very small. So... Yeah, I the number I've read before is like 350, but uh, I think 200 is not unfair to say can the actual town, the actual part of town where we live, I think 200 is very fair to say. So you, you take this perspective and then you put a guy like me on an airplane. And for me, you know, I had flown once before, but it was when I was very young, I couldn't even remember it. So for all intents and purposes, this is my first time flying. And, and you land in this in this different country, you barely speak the language, if you could even say that. And then the first thing you one of the very first things you do is you have to take public transportation to get to somewhere, which for me was just bizarre. Because, mm -hmm. you know, growing up at you, you have a car, you have a car, you drive wherever you need to, you pay for your own gas. Like there was no hopping on the train or buying tickets at the at the station and then getting on the train and going from stop to stop until you're there. So this was the initial first shock for me, but then it really, really hit me. And I, I couldn't tell you the name of the street, but get out of this train, me and me and the people I'm there with, and you just see people everywhere up and down the street. And, and you could probably get a similar experience in, in any of these big, you know, metropolitan areas in the States as well. But for me, this is my first time experiencing it. So I'm in a whole new area with a different language and just like like you showed earlier, millions of people just packed into such a such a small area. So for me, it was essentially as if I had left Earth and, and kind of landed on the moon. Mm -hmm. Something something so new, so different. And, and it was honestly... And maybe there was a sense of jet lag to make it that first initial landing, you know, a little bit really extra special or, or weird feeling. But I, I just can't even describe not knowing what to do, being completely almost shell shocked just at the everything my brain was trying to take in at the same time, you know. So 
it, it, but it, in the in the sense of why it was awesome is because it was something completely new. It was like stepping out and realizing, kind of like you had said with the the rainforest, is like this whole time this has existed at the same time I've existed in, in my whole other world. So that perspective was just really cool to, to experience. And then, you know, my experience throughout Germany, just the, the architecture, the, the people, they're, you know, they're, they're very direct, very straightforward. It was very strange for them for me to just come up and say hi to them. That's, that's not a court cultural like norm over there in Germany. So just being friendly farm town, you know, young kid, it, it was, it was different once again. So it really, I mean, to sum things up, it, it's basically just that it was an experience that I had never had before. And I don't think I ever could experience again, just because it was such a drastic contrast in what I was used to and, and what I came to. I think you described that very, very well. And it, it, it truly is a huge contrast from everything in your life before that. And what do you fall back on? I mean, in that situation, you've got surroundings that are different than you've ever experienced. You've got language, languages, probably Berlin, that are different than anything you've ever spoken or understood. You've got new systems of transportation, new types of architecture, new everything. I mean, talk about fish out of water. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think for me, the number one was the transportation. <laughs> Just like I'd said, you know, we'd been driving since, you know, we were all really young, much younger than we should have been driving in probably all of our cases because of growing up on the farm. But here it was just like, okay, there's a train, there's a bus, be there at this time. If you miss it, well, try again in 40 minutes. And it's just, it's bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> How long did it take you to feel more comfortable in in those like super urban settings? Um, it re a lot of that really, it only took probably a couple weeks to get used to the size of like the, the scope, how many people there are that, that public transportation is a thing. Like all of that really only took a couple weeks to where, okay, it's starting to feel normal. Kind of like when you go on vacation somewhere and, and everything's new and fresh for the first little bit, but then, after a little bit, it just kind of starts to become the new norm. You know, we adapt really quickly as people, but the bigger thing was the language. It, I never really truly felt comfortable just going anywhere, doing anything until I started to grasp the language better. Cause once you at least feel confident that you, even if you don't know if you're going the right place or that you're going to get there at the right time, you can at least properly ask for help. Cause for the first couple months you may not even be able to do that and even if you do say something right there's no guarantee that you're going to understand what answer you get mm -hmm. so the, the language was probably the biggest thing and, and i'd say at least in my experience that was probably somewhere around my probably somewhere around my three to four month mark when i really was just like all right i i understand this language i can get across what i need to and, and we're good to go let's let's go have some fun all right well, let's move on to Jake. Uh, Jake's awesome experience. A uh, little bit harder for me to research. So let's talk about the Uinta National Forest, 2.1 million acres. The Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest. It's one of the most heavily visited forests in the National Forest System. And you've got everything happening in that area. Uh, there's sheep and cattle permits to let them graze on the National Forest. 
there's watersheds that uh, the water that goes through the national forest area is going to provide the water for nearly the entire state of Utah and big portions of Wyoming and eventually by extension Nevada and then there's all the typical recreation you think happening in happening in public lands uh, the highest mountain range in the contiguous United States that runs east to west that's the Uintas very atypical for mountains to run east to west instead of north to south and it contains the highest mountain in Utah which is Kings Peak uh, so that's details on the Uinta National Forest, which is where Jake's experience happened, and that's all I know about it. So take it from there, Jake. Well, I, I was looking it up just to kind of get an idea of how large it was, and I think Uinta, just because I was curious, in Utah and several states, there are landmarks or cities or what have you named based off of Native American names or words, and Uinta is no exception. I don't recall which language. It might have been Ute, but the, the meaning is pine forest, I believe. And if you've ever been to the Uintas, you know that there are pine trees as far as the eye can see. But specifically to my experience, one time, I believe it was, it would have had to have been either hunting or herding cattle, looking for cattle. I believe it was the latter. I think we were trying to find where the cattle were to make sure they were in their designated, their proper designated area per the permits, as Cooper had mentioned. And at one point on the horses, my dad and I uh, decided to split up. He had instructed me to go a certain direction and, and he would go a different direction. Now, as memory serves, I think I would have been only about 11 or 12 years old at this time. I'd been riding horses for a number of years, but never alone and certainly never up in, in among the peaks of a national forest, but he was confident in me. And so I, well, whether or not he was, I didn't have any say in the matter. That's what he said to do. So that's what I had to do. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go up to a, a peak that didn't look like it was too far away. And he went down into some valley or up to some ridge somewhere else. And so when I got up to this peak, I had the most, one of the most unique experiences I've ever had with the natural world. I got up there and it must have been, I don't know, it could have been early summer or midsummer because the, at the base of the, the, the hills, there was no snow and it was rather warm. But once you got up to the top, you had to put on a jacket because there were still snow caps in, in certain places. And I got up to this peak and I hadn't realized just how high up we had already come, dad and I. And as I got up there and looked around, it was a shock to me to realize that I could do a 360 degree turn to survey my surroundings and there was not a single sign of civilization whatsoever. There were no roads. There were no towers for any communications there. At the time, there were no planes in the sky. And then I realized as well, there were no sounds of civilization there. Was, and you don't really realize, but even if you're, you know, in your, your house in a quiet place, there's still ambient noise from civilization, even if it's from your utilities in your house, but none of that was there. It was, it was almost like a, like a wide open vacuum. 
And as all of this was sort of hitting me, it, it almost felt like there was a kind of like static electricity all like all over my my extremities. It was it was such a bizarre and unexpected feeling. And I just, you know, instantly started thinking, man, what mu must it have been like for the pioneers that trekked west that were blazing trails where no one had ever been before? And honestly, the only thing that I could hear and then until I got used to it was my own breathing and, and the breathing of the horse that I was on. And it's just stuck with me all my life. It's it's something that I think back to and just, you know, anytime I, I sort of get wrapped up in the minutia of work or, you know, day-to-day -day life or anything that might be frustrating, I'll think back to that and, and just think, okay, look at this perspective of this natural awe and beauty and both power, but also, well, beauty at the same time. And it's just stuck with me ever since. I, I've never experienced anything like it since then in the natural world nothing comes even close hmm. so in that moment for you though you would say it was pretty overwhelmingly positive there were you didn't really have any feelings of of anxiousness or oh i'm out here all alone because i feel like for a lot of people that would be a very natural response in that exact situation is oh crap i am completely and utterly alone what if and then the mind starts to race. You know, that's a good point, Chance. I, I hadn't really considered that, but no, not at all. It was, if anything, it was among the most peaceful, uh, brief moments of of my life up to that point, certainly there, thereafter. But no, definitely no feelings of, of anxiety, of, of uh, even, you know, I've heard some people say the insignificance, you know, if they're out in the ocean or if they're up on a peak or, you know, if they're, and you know fill in the blank there they they just felt so insignificant but i didn't really feel that if anything i felt safe and i don't know if i would say protected but probably peaceful is is you know while at the same time feeling this power of nature and this wow look at this grandeur that's here before me but also very content and worry and anxiety free it was very it was very bizarre now that i think about it but no, it's a good question. Very, very much a positive experience, though. I, w I wonder if it's, was there any sense of like, even though my life experience up to now has not been this remote, this free of other people, did it feel like that is also a place you are meant to be as a human? Or an environment you are meant to be in or wired to be in? To be honest with you, Coop, I'd never really considered that aspect of it. Now that I do consider it, I would say very much yes. It was, it was almost like my being or my existence was a puzzle piece that had been up till, up till that point removed from where it fits into the, the broader puzzle of life. But then for that brief, you know, 30 minutes or so, the puzzle piece was put back in place. So I don't know if that analogy makes any sense at all, but it, it definitely felt it, it definitely felt like a a very natural as opposed to unnatural 
setting for for me to be in in that or or potentially even anyone to be in humans to be in uh, it's very interesting i don't know if that quite answers your question no it does it does very well and just to i was going to ask you how long and you said 30 minutes so that i it's quite a sensory experience uh, it must have been a powerful sensory experience if you were there for 20 30 minutes and you still think about it to this day which has got to be pushing 30 years later, 20 to 30 years later. Yeah, very, very yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, not quite 30. Um, yeah, very, very much. And it was so, it was so fleeting as well as, as, as soon as I had sort of made the decision to come down off of that, that peak, that sort of ridgy peak that it was, and, you know, started looking for the cattle again, now all of a sudden it was gone. It, it was, you know, it, it was basically like the magic was there and then the magic was was gone. And I don't know if the experience would be the same if I attempted to replicate it. You know, there's there's that first that first timeness mm -hmm. to pretty much everything in life. You know, when you experience something a second time or subsequent mm -hmm. times, it never quite leaves the impact that the first time you experienced it or faced it or whatever did similar to going back to chances or I'm sure yours Coop, if you, you know, were to return to that, that national rainforest that you were in or, or chance, I'm sure in your subsequent trips to uh, going back to the city center in Berlin, I doubt that it left that same impression, but in any case, it was, it was, it was very fleeting. It was very brief, but it was just as impactful. Well, I think that's a great start to the episode, um, our awesome experiences. Thanks for putting thought into those things. You both described your experiences extremely well. We're going to move on to the next section now, and that's high honors. A little bit more rapid pace and a little bit more just sharing things that we enjoy. This week, just for simplicity's sake, we said, hey, three of my favorite video games and why. And I'm going to have Chance start on this one. I've put together a few facts, so I'll say your choice, and then you say why. Okay. Chances is chronological. We're going to go back to the year 2000 and talk about Diablo 2 on the PC. In March of 2001, the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences said, this is the PC role-playing game of the year, the PC game of the year, and overall video game of the year on ign.com i found the current as far as i know the current list of the top 100 rpgs of all time i think it's a running list and they place diablo 2 at number eight of all time rpgs and the guinness book of world records the year it went on sale the year 2000 said diablo was the fastest selling pc game of all time after it sold 1 million copies in two weeks, which when you talk about going to the store and you had to buy physical CDs, it's not that way anymore. And so all those people had to go out and physically buy it, and it was the fastest selling PC game. So tell us about Diablo 2. So Diablo 2 started for me as a bit of a, uh, what would you call it? I was so intrigued by Diablo 2, actually, because of Jake. <laughs> so this is a game that Jake played when he was in school. 
And I think Jake had a really good insight as to just what this game was going to, well, what had it maybe in a sense done to him, but what it would certainly do to me, just in the sense of the pure, there's no way to describe it other than addiction that comes with playing a game like this. So for me, Diablo 2 at first was just like, hey, I, I finally am old enough to play that game that, that you know Jake didn't want me to play because um, for various reasons. But when I started playing it, I just absolutely fell in love. And, and this was a very impressionable time in life, in, you know, 2000s when it came out. I wasn't playing it then. Um, I was too young for that when it came out. But by the time I had experienced it, I wasn't really dealing with, the, you know, the dial-up internet or any of the some of the weird stuff that some people were dealing with it, with it. But it's just a game where there is so much variety and the replay value is just there are very very few games that have replay value like it because you've got different character classes all that can do different abilities and skills and and it was obviously at a time when there was no catch to any of it there were no microtransactions there was no really there, there wasn't even much dlc if you will at this point it was just you paid for the game, you got whatever experience that, that game got you, and in my case, this is still one of those games where simply talking about it gets me motiv motivated enough to, to bring it back up and, and try playing through it again. And, I mean, it's been every bit of about 15, 16 years now that, that I've played it, and with a few exceptions here and there, I always pull it back up and I always play it again. It's just, there's just too much to it. I just absolutely love it. Well, that sounds like quite the endorsement. I, I've played it a little bit. I never got too into it. But as I researched and learned more about it, it seems like that combination of dungeon crawling and role-playing game RPG progression and skills and items, and then, oh, also there's tremendous incentive to get online and play with other humans and help each other out. And mm -hmm. it, from what I read, it sounds like that is something that Diablo 2 did. It was one of the first games to do it and one of the best games ever still to combine all those things. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, myself included, would argue that even the Diablo franchise itself, which is now on to Diablo 4, still has even yet to come close to replicating it again. To you know, So much to the extent that you know, just a couple years ago, they released a totally remastered version for Diablo 2. So for someone like me who grew up playing in the old pixelated graphics and, and still had so much fun with it, to go and then receive a complete remaster but have the core elements of the game remain exactly identical to the point where you can press a button on your keyboard to switch between the graphics from 2000 and, and modern whatever you want to have 4k ultra hd graphics whatever is it was like it was it was nothing but a treat it was just like here's a game i love and here's that game now modernized but still hitting all of the the same buttons it has for so long just phenomenal well and i think i need to uh to to oh. expound a little bit not to steal any of chances thunder here but the reason i didn't want chance to play this game for the listeners is because Diablo 2 for me was the game where I had to painfully admit that mom and dad were right 
about video games not necessarily being good for you. It was it was mm-hmm. so fun. It was so addictive. I would get home. I would turn it on. I would play it for hours and hours into the wee hours of the morning. Get get up, and it would. It, I'm on honestly. It would be distracting sometimes, even at school. I had a friend that I played it with, and. So yes, I had to I had to force myself to quit Diablo 2 for that reason. And so that was why I tried so hard for so long to to help you not make the same mistake that I did. Luckily, I think that you were able to to manage that a little bit better than I was at the time. We're going to go from the year 2000 to the year 2015. Speaking of games that some people might say aren't good for you. Um, this is Bloodborne. In 2015, IGN called it the PlayStation 4 game of the year. And British GQ, they wrote an article, and it was kind of interesting. They said, we asked the world's greatest game developers, streamers, directors, writers, and more to help us ground the, crown the best video games of all time. So more of an industry insider look at things. And of the 100 greatest video games, that group called Bloodborne number four. Wow the fourth greatest game of all time. So why is that, Chance? So one thing that you'll get when when you start talking about Bloodborne, there will obviously be people that will throw that in in a kind of its own subsection of video games called the Soulsborns. So many people will be familiar with them. Dark Souls, Demon Souls, Bloodborne, they're all they're all made by the same people. So they're all category they have their own category because they're unique and for the most part it was a group of games that finally went back to video gaming's roots in the sense of it's extremely difficult you know this is one of those games that when you first pick up and play it there are barely tutorials there's no there's no world over map there's no pausing or saving the game that, you know, I mean, there is saving, but there's not in the sense of save states. Mm-hmm. So you just have to get thrown in and you just have to learn it. Now, I, my, my experience with these games actually started with Dark Souls 2, which many would regard as the worst in the whole series, but I loved it. It kind of got me hooked. So Bloodborne came on PlayStation Plus for free, and I was just like, well, I like that one, so I'm going to try this. And just the atmosphere it has a very very gothic atmosphere if you will it's 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 dark the music is just spot on and and all the monsters and the enemies it just makes you kind of feel like you're transported to a whole new world and and for me the the number one thing i love about bloodborne and any of the games like this is without a doubt the sense of satisfaction at some of the smallest things you know, when you're first starting the game, it's it's defeating the, the easiest, most simple enemy. And as you get better and better, it's it's taking on all the bosses and moving on. But there, I don't think there's any game that I could say I had a more satisfied feeling when I did it. And then for me personally, I went one step further and was like, okay, I can't just beat the game. I love this game. I want to do it, you know, the respect it deserves. And so I went back, and my next goal was to get a platinum trophy, which means you accomplish everything you possibly can in that game. Mm-hmm. And that was, without a doubt, in all the video gaming, the the most difficult task I've ever had to accomplish. But when I finally did it, it was like, 
it was just this feeling of of satisfaction and I, I finally did it. So for me for these first two games, you know, Bloodborne and Diablo two, these these happen to be um Diablo two being my second favorite and Bloodborne being my favorite game of all time. I I, I hesitated to bring these up so early in our in our podcast, but there really aren't any other games on my list that that really hold a candle to these two, mm-hmm. just in terms of overall quality and what I like. The any games we talk about here from the future, I could probably mix and match them in any way, shape, or form, just based off what I'm playing at the time. But these two are like the definitive top two must plays for me. I think that's great to lead out with that because if anybody wants to get to know you and your interests and wants a sterling recommendation from someone who's played a lot of video games, what better recommendation could you make? Absolutely. A little bit different category. So we're going to stay in the year 2015 and we're going to talk about World of Warships. So in 2016, the Golden Joystick Awards nominated World of Warships for the best multiplayer game of the year and the best PC game of the year, which I thought was really interesting because this game is completely free to play. Yep, It's getting nominated for these awards just in the entire industry. Best PC game, anyone can get on, download, and start playing it free of charge. Yeah, and that's exactly how it started for me. I actually was um, introduced to this game by a close friend of yours, Cooper, and he just said, hey, this game's for free about ships try it out and i you know i didn't have any experience with any of the war gaming games world of tanks world world of uh warships or um whatever the other one's called i actually don't i've never even played it the the one with the airplanes but this one for me the reason i put it on the list is because it has a lot of historical ships which i've always just found fascinating just the whole era of the battleship to me, you know, mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two, when they were kind of at the height, you know, the, the these massive dreadnought battleships, and it, it's just a really cool concept. So to be able to, you know, go and pick your nationality, you know, you know, the U.S., Germany, uh, Japan, any of those 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 big players in in the World Wars, they've all got their own different, you know, ships that almost all of them are historically accurate. Now they've started adding some that they just make up to keep the game alive, but for me, it was like, all right, I got this game. I'm going to play as, you know, the, as the Germans because I'd been to Germany and I knew of the, ba- the, the battleship Bismarck. An absolutely phenomenal uh, war machine. There's, there's a lot of really cool stories about the, the battleship Bismarck out there for anyone who's interested in that kind of historical side. So for me, it, it's just that game where... I always enjoy playing it, but it's also not one that I have to sink my teeth into for a month straight. I can just hop on, play it, get a couple battles in here and there, and it's just one of those games that I always keep installed on my computer, and I just enjoy it. it it's it's very different from the other two games I mentioned. They don't really have a single thing in common. Um, it's just another game I love and enjoy, and, and it's free to try, so why not? Moving on to Jake, his top three we're going to get a little bit older for the first one. I'm going chronologically again. We're going back to 1993, and this game first appeared on the original Game Boy. It's The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. IGN, in their article, The Best Game Boy Games, put this at number two of all time. 
behind only Pokemon Yellow, but Nintendo Life, in their article, Best Game Boy Games of All Time, they put Pokemon Yellow down to number five and go ahead and put Link's Awakening at number one. They said, It would be difficult to argue against The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening being the pinnacle of gaming on the Game Boy. Link's Awakening created enormous shockwaves in the Zelda franchise that we're still feeling today. What do you think, Jake? I certainly agree with their assessment and would even take it a little bit further. Now, I need to specify that I didn't play the Link's Awakening original version that came out for the Game Boy. I played Link's Awakening DX, which came out for the Game Boy Color, which off the top of my head, I don't know exactly when it launched, but I didn't get it right when it came out anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But yes, this really was a Game Boy game that delivered an experience that I would say rivaled experiences on the much more powerful consoles. And it it was such a rare gem. These games that I have listed here are ones that I still will go back and play today. They have a, not just a replay value, but they bring with it a sense of nostalgia and some of the memories of, of the time spent playing them for the very first time. But Link's Awakening was really, really neat in that it was kind of an experiment. I, I've done a little bit of research on it in the time since playing it, and it's been remade uh, recently for the Nintendo Switch, and I played through that, and that was a wonderful remake as well. But with this, some of the original creators in the Zelda video game um, world, I guess you could say, some of the, the the folks working on the original Zelda games for the Nintendo. The studio or the team. The, yeah, the team, yeah. yeah. Not just the studio, but yeah. the team. They were given a little bit more free reign with Link's Awakening than they were with the TV consoles because at the time, the Game Boy was still kind of treated as a little bit of a side project. They weren't really sure how successful it was going to be. And so they were able to take some creative liberties with this game that they weren't with the the main games in the series. For example, as I'm sure you guys are aware, you've got other Nintendo characters making cameos in this game, mm-hmm. not something that would have happened in, in, the main, huh. in the main series. You have a lot of mechanics that were first tried here. So for example, Link's famous now, um, I don't even know what the official Nintendo name is for the the move that he does when he holds the sword and then he does a full 360 with the sword swinging and can hit any enemy in in his in that radius. This is the first game that that came out on. It wasn't in the original The Legend of Zelda or The Legend of Zelda 2 on the Nintendo. Though they had wanted they that they, they had thought about doing that, they didn't do it until this. So anyway, it goes on and with the each new version, they did add a little bit of stuff. So for the the color version for the the Game Boy Color, they added a couple new dungeons. They obviously made it color instead of just the the grayscale or the green scale with the original Game Boy, which made it a lot of fun. But it's just a good fun game it's not overly complex like some of the newer zelda games every time you finish a dungeon you you're pretty much ready to move on to the next one there are some cool little sub plots where you can trade items for other things and get upgraded equipment and stuff like that my problem with some of the newer zelda games is they're just so heavy to play the dungeons just keep getting bigger there's more intricate intricate side quests this one i feel like it was it, it was just the right balance of a challenge but also very better entertaining 
and also a kind of a wacky story as well. I'm not going to do any spoilers, but things aren't as they seem that you find out later in the game. And I just felt like they they really got it right with this one. And the fact that they did it on the Game Boy of all of all systems is just really, really impressive. Lots of innovation. I was just listening to, I watched a YouTube video about the origin of the different mainline Zelda games and a TV series that was huge in the U.S. at this time and kind of inspired Link's Awakening story was Twin Peaks. Oh, boy. Like, again, things are not really as they seem. Kind of interesting. I did not know that. That's funny. Mm -hmm. But it does make sense. Yeah. So speaking of cameos, I know in Link's Awakening, you can't advance through the initial part of one of the levels until you find the Bow Wow. So 1996, he makes another appearance in Super Mario 64. IGN, in their article, the best Nintendo 64 games, (laughs) said Super Mario 64 is the second best. They said it still stands as a prime example of 3D platforming and world design done right. Considering it was released with the Nintendo 64 and had a lot of competition after its release, standing at number two is impressive. Um, Nintendo Life, in their best Nintendo 64 games of all time, put it at number four, and it's behind some absolutely stiff competition. GoldenEye 007, Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask, and Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So not, not really anything to be ashamed of compared to those games. And I would say this one, it's just a fun game. So this is probably the game that I have played more over and over. Not necessarily playthroughs, but this is the game that if I just want to go and game and sort of turn off my brain for a little while and just kind of have some fun, Mario 64 is where I go. It, I, I feel like it was such a big jump from the Super Nintendo Marios, which we never really had I, to my recollection we never had a super nintendo in in our house growing up the the nintendo 64 was kind of our i don't remember it if we did yeah i know we we had the the sega genesis we had the nes but uh the nintendo 64 was really the first big console that we got almost i mean not right when it came out in in 96 but pretty close and Super Mario 64 was just such a, a crazy experience with 3D gaming and the music, they nailed it. The, the, the level design, they nailed it. It was fun. It was bright. It was happy, but there still was a sense of danger. And I just think it's, it's so replayable. I mean, I have gone through and gotten all 120 stars several times since my first playthrough, but it's also one that just for me personally never really gets old. And it's it's one obviously that there's no hesitation in, in playing it in front of the kids or and I'm not sure if you guys knew about this, but the modding community has has gone back and created all kinds of HD upscale remasters. I, I was playing a version of it on a gaming handheld where it was like 60 frames per second upscaled to to i don't know if it was 2k or 4k with upgraded textures i mean it looked like it was it was super mario 64 but on a playstation 5 it was Mm -hmm. was really really fun to play it was so smooth but the core of it, it it doesn't matter if you're do if you're playing it in that form or on original hardware on a nintendo 64 it's just a fun game 
that brings, you know, a, a level of enjoyment that I don't know if I have experienced on any other game. And I think that's probably why to this day, I'll go back and play it periodically just for fun. Yeah. If I may real quick, Jake, to your point, this is, you know, I, I play a lot of games, so it's hard for me to even come up with a top games list, but Mario 64 is actually something my wife and I every year annually have a, have, we pull it out and we race. I, I play on Nintendo 64. She plays on GameCube and we, uh, we race to the 120 stars and, and we go back and forth. It's just, it's just plain fun. End of story. There's just no other way to describe it. Well, we're going to shift in tone a little bit. <laughs> Jake's next one released in 2013 for the PlayStation three, the last of us. IGN called it the best PS3 game of all time. Empire Magazine, this is Empire's a, they do a lot of these compilations, a lot of these polls, a lot of these rankings. You can find the Empire list for best movies, best films in different genres. And they did a massive poll of the 100 best video games and placed The Last of Us at number one. They said the impact of Naughty Dog's post-apocalyptic epic was earth-shattering for players and rival developers alike. It scored highly in all aspects, combat, crafting, acting, script, sound design, art design, graphics, and more, but it was its story and its characters that really set The Last of Us apart. So Jake, why is it at the top of your list? Wow, how, how do you talk about The Last of Us? I mean, I think that what it was that uh, empire that uh, you had you had mentioned there talking about every now and then a game will come out that just creates almost a shift in the entire video game atmosphere and the last of us was was one of those so going back years and years and years we've we've mentioned that we grew up on a on a farm on a cattle ranch so for me, my upbringing was, you know, it was similar for all of us, but for me, I was the oldest. Therefore, I was the the experiment child. So when it came to farm work during the summer, I wasn't able to go to the lake. I wasn't able to go to the mall. I wasn't able to go, you know, hang out with friends until much, much later, till I was like in high school, because I had to stay home. I had to go you know, move the, the canvas in, in the ditch to irrigate the field. I had to go check on the this. I had to go feed the that. And so video games for me was really the only sort of escape and, and enjoyment that I had outside of, and I'm sure we'll cover this in, in subsequent episodes, reading and, uh, you know, film. But my access to those things were, were very limited, you know, growing up where I did. And so video games offered kind of the best of, of all worlds. You've got a very good narrative in in the three games that i've mentioned here i tend to lean towards enjoying single player games because i do like a good story and the last of us came in and just you know much later in, in life 2013 at this point it just was such a perfect combination of the graphics were amazing i mean i thought that the, what they were able to accomplish with the playstation 3 at this point obviously you know they're always making better and better graphics, but this was just such a jump ahead uh, compared to any of the other games at the time. The story, you just never really knew what was going to happen next. It was very satisfying, but at the same time, 
at times heartbreaking and the gameplay mechanics were really really fun fairly intuitive but also not so easy that it got boring and just the landscapes the the design of the environments that you were in but also the sound the music and of course the enemy design i mean they just really they knocked it out of the park in every sense with the last of us and it you know it shows in the sales as well i mean it's been remastered at least twice now i think they they did one once for the playstation 4 and then again for the playstation 5 um with a couple of updates but the core of the game is the same as it was when it came out in 2013 and it you know it does mention that the, the the relationships between the characters they they just kind of came out of left field they told a story that you're not used to seeing in a video game format for probably the first time if not definitely the most impactful time and so yeah i couldn't agree more with uh, with empire magazines listing this as number one and it if it hadn't been on, I had the advantage kind of moderating this episode um, of seeing these picks in advance, because if you didn't have it down, I was going to have it down. <laughs> now moving to my list. I'm going to start in the year 2001. And Jake, you'll have to explain, did you find Crystal Version on the school bus? No, this was... Where did our, where did our cassette, where did the cartridge come from? This was in the grass underneath a handful of hay at the arena down the street. A Pokemon Game Boy. I had never heard this before right now. <laughs> yep. I found this on the ground underneath a pile of hay that I had moved. I don't even know why I moved the hay at the arena. <laughs> I did not know that. Yep. So from those humble beginnings to being... My favorite Game Boy game, my favorite Game Boy Color game, Pokemon Crystal version. So this is the second generation of Pokemon, which was definitely uh, when we were in elementary school, middle school. I mean, that was Pokemon fever. That was the height of it. Mm -hmm. um, GameSpot in March of 2023 said in their article, the best Pokemon games ranked, they said number one, is Pokemon Gold, Silver, and Crystal. And the way they release these games is, is two different paired games, Pokemon Gold and Pokemon Silver, and then later an updated version that combined aspects of both games. And, and for the second generation of Pokemon, that was Crystal. For me, the second generation of Pokemon did everything right without trying to do too much. I played the first generation, red version, blue version, yellow version. I thoroughly enjoyed those. And Pokemon, the second generation is what happens when you take a great idea and you add some quality of life improvements. You create interesting new worlds, interesting new Pokemon. And really just put your heart and soul into, we have something great. How do we make it even better? And it's something that sometimes in the video game industry, it just doesn't happen anymore. It's so, it's not art or fun driven sometimes anymore. It's money driven. And Pokemon Crystal, you mm. want to talk about an awesome sit down on your little Game Boy and have an incredible experience. I loved Pokemon Crystal that way, taking so many things we loved about the RPG genre, the Pokemon universe, 
and just make it better. And then, oh, by the way, when you think you've beat the game, you can go ahead and play twice as long and go through an entire other area that they threw in just to help make gamers happy. Wow, I didn't know that. That's why I love Pokemon Crystal. And and to that point, Cooper, this is something where that what you just described, the, the going back and playing through a whole section for no other reason than to make the players happy, that just simply does not happen anymore and hasn't for a long time. In, in today's gaming, that would cost you every minute of that experience. Mm-hmm. So to just yeah. be able to do it for free, I mean, this, yeah, I agree, this this game, played it many times, we'll play it again, and it's, it's, it's so good. Okay, so my next one, um, I went a little out of order because I just didn't want to talk about this one first. Um, 1998, Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, awesome video game. So there are some reviews, review aggregator websites, two of these are Metacritic and Game Rankings, where they... Their job is to pool together all these reviews from all these different websites. They both rank the original Nintendo 64 version of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time as the highest reviewed game of all time. Metacritic average score 99 out of 100. Game rankings 98%. And the Guinness Book of World Records.com awards it the most critically acclaimed video game ever. Wow. So, Ocarina of Time makes my list. Um, a lot of people say, uh, that's your favorite because of nostalgia. People who put Ocarina of Time as number one, it's all nostalgia. It's the first one you played, whatever. So, we actually played the original Legend of Zelda, or the second. I, I know we at least played the second Legend of Zelda on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And then we played Link's Awakening, or had access to it. And then, Jake, when it was released, you bought, it kind of within the week of release, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And I didn't play Ocarina of Time until after all of that. Oh, interesting. And I got it for my birthday um, a few a couple years after release. And... I sat down and I beat the game from beginning to end without looking at any guides, without looking up anything online, just fully engrossed from the opening scene to the closing scene with this game that had an amazing story, a revolutionary combat system, interesting characters, interesting puzzles and dungeons, everything that The Legend of Zelda is, and everything that a lot of video games, combat, and adventure games afterwards, uh, it's just found in Ocarina of Time. Nothing, I was never so fully engrossed emotionally, intellectually, just with this video game experience from beginning to end, as with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I was fully invested in the story, the characters, and really felt like I was in this whole new world making important things happen. And I've never been so emotional to have a closing scene of a video game and say that experience is over and I'll never have that again for the first time. Just, I I can't say enough about it. And I think it still holds up really well 
if you can forgive some blocky graphics, you can still have that experience with Ocarina of Time. So I'm curious, I didn't know until this moment, and I guess maybe I did and just forgot, that you played Ocarina of Time after Majora's Mask. That is correct. Which is interesting because I think that I played Ocarina of Time prior to Majora's Mask, but over at a friend's house. Mm -hmm. So with that being the case, and I actually do, they're both great games, but I do prefer Majora's Mask over Ocarina of Time. Not going to get into the details here, but I do want to know why you, after playing Majora's Mask first, still would say Ocarina of Time for you is the better game. It comes down to the pacing and the structure. I, The pacing of Ocarina of Time, when it comes to what you need to do to get to the next dungeon and then solving that dungeon and getting a new item. And that item helps you move to this next area, and you have to help people in between. Just the way it was paced to me was perfect. Mm. You sat down, you had this awesome experience, you got a sense of fulfillment, you saved the game, you came back the next day, and you had that experience again, and you had that experience 20, 25, 30 times, until the end of the game where the story just slaps you in the face and comes full circle. That's why I prefer it um, over Majora's Mask, which is also, you know, a game in my top 10, maybe top five video games. So mm -hmm. nothing, taking nothing away from Majora's Mask, but Majora's Mask played into a different maturity level and different thoughts and feelings. And Ocarina of Time was this, you're a kid dumped into this world, now go and save it. Mm. And I really got that feeling from Ocarina of Time. One thing I'd like to add, whether... <clears throat> I didn't know if either of you actually knew this or not, but apparently I was listening to a podcast where a gentleman talked about Ocarina of Time and how it was kind of like you've, you've said, Coop. It was the experience of his life up to that point. But he had known about the game coming out for a long time and was anxiously awaiting it. And I didn't know that there was actually delay after delay after delay for this game coming out. So you had a, a massive player base of people excited and anxious to play this game. And they just kept getting pushed back and back and back. And I think that's why, in a lot of cases, when that happens to a game and then the game doesn't perform... It, it really shows, like, has a negative light on that game where Ocarina of Time was just like, okay, the wait's over, and then boom, you get slapped in the face with what many, and in a lot of times I would agree, is one of, if not the best games ever made of all time. So it was the people's anticipation and the having to wait for it, but then totally and completely in every way paying off and being worth the wait. Mm -hmm. And that was an experience for many people. Um, not the experience for me. This was just, hey, there's another Zelda game on Nintendo 64. And, uh, but speaking to that development process, the uh, Ocarina of Time, they wanted to release it on release with Nintendo 64 alongside or uh, the year after Super Mario 64. But they wanted to do it right 
they did they they wanted to respect the franchise that is the legend of zelda and they kept having good ideas but those good ideas with the programming available for the nintendo 64 they had to invent new ways to incorporate those ideas into a video game and so they wanted to make it the best game they could but it did keep getting delayed because they weren't going to do anything with half measures. Mm. And so what you ended up with was a game a year or two delayed, but even in those last couple years of development, it was still the team putting their heart and soul into it and really paid off. Um, so I guess we'll move on. I could talk about, <laughs> I could talk a lot more about Ocarina of Time, but I uh, want to move to 2017. I don't know if this surprises either of you two that this is very, very high on my all-time list, but it's it's Super Mario Odyssey. The reason Super Mario Odyssey is on my list, 2023 IGN article, um, they talked about the 10, they ranked the 10 best Super Mario games of all time, and they put Super Mario Odyssey at number two, and that was behind only Super Mario interesting to me because they they play very different i think the people to whom super mario world on the super nintendo appeal might not be the same set of people as those that love super mario odyssey mm. but to me the reason super mario odyssey is on this list is we just got it a year ago many years after release just because i've heard good things and you know it's a famous fun franchise let's just sit down and and play this and have some fun with it. And the level design, Mario's movement, the pacing. Uh, Super Mario Odyssey is the most fun I've had playing a video game in the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years. Just that sense of fun, that sense of this is why video games exist. This is why we play these, to just sit down and have fun. There's a point in one of the levels, after you beat one of the levels, you go through this kind of mini level and there's this upbeat music going and it's really fast paced and you're navigating this thing at full speed. And it was just like this sense of fun, happy, what a fun experience that I haven't had since I was a child. Like Super Mario Odyssey really nailed that sit down and have a fun time. Kind of like you mentioned with Super Mario 64. Um, I love that game as well. Um, and Super Mario Odyssey has a lot of that. It can be challenging. It can be really easy, but it's always fun, always satisfying. Chance, have you played Super Mario Odyssey? Um, I haven't. I, you know, I'm pretty weird when it comes to Mario games and, and some games just in general. I, I love Mario 64 in, in every way, shape and form. I believe I tried Mario Sunshine once and I just, I just could not get into it. And ever since then, um, actually I think I tried Galaxy as well once, but I, I just, that, because they weren't Mario 64, I didn't really give them the time of day, so this one, this one's interesting because it's newer than than those by a good margin. So it does have me curious. But no, I've, 
I, I'd never actually even heard of this until I think we were at Cooper's house and, and he showed us mm. a couple levels on it. Well, I ask you that cause I didn't think that you had, but Cooper either help me if you remember, did you recommend you gave this to me? Yeah. I, as a gift. Yeah. So I, I was, I, I haven't beat it yet. I've, I've played partially through it, but I think chance this might be the one to bring you back to that Mario 64. I, this, this is a very, a very enjoyable game. And I am very glad that Cooper recommended it to me again. The kids love watching play it. So yes, I can, I can, I am glad that, that Cooper was as enthused as he was to not only recommend it, but gift it to me. So I, that is about as good of an endorsement as, as someone can give on a game. And it playing Odyssey, you know, speaking to that, it, it as I was playing it, I, I kind of felt like this game channels the spirit of Super Mario 64. Mm-hmm. The way you play the game, get some coins, and how satisfying it is to get the power moons or stars or whatever it is on that given level. If you explore and think creatively, you're going to end up with finding some of those power moons and it just it, it plays that same kind of way it it channels that kind of freewheeling spirit of super mario 64 um in a way that i really really enjoyed and i, I think those two pair very nicely together if you if you liked that one you'll like this one this one just has a lot of features awesome levels it's super fun and i would say it has probably about what you would expect as far as 20 years worth of improvements or additions to nearly the 20 years that passed since Mario 64 came out. I think that, you know, there there was a, a proportional or maybe even more so of, I don't know, it's as good of a game for being 20 years after Mario 64 as you would expect, or maybe even a little better. If, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I guess not to dwell on it too much longer, but the question for me would be, is this a game that merits purchasing a new system altogether? Because the Nintendo switch is one of the few systems that I never have owned. And for whatever reason, just haven't really ever been interested in, but if it's that good, maybe that's worth looking into. Well, let me put it this way. This last Christmas, you made a very specific request for your present. And had you not made that specific request, you probably would have gotten a Switch with Super Mario Odyssey. That's how I feel about this game. (laughs) Oh, interesting. And Chance, going back to what you had said, I felt exactly the same way about Mario Sunshine and Mario Galaxy. I I just couldn't. This Mario Odyssey, I, I think you would like it. And... You know, not to go too far into the weeds here, but the Switch has some really impressive games. And I'm not going to name any more because that'll probably come in subsequent episodes. But I think that you and your wife would uh, you, you would enjoy having a Switch or maybe even two hmm. at home. Very, very good to know. That was a, a fun discussion and definitely one we can carry into future episodes. We're going to move into our next segment. Segment. Um, little bit different format here. I really recommend. 
So we've talked high honors and why we enjoy some of the games we've talked about. I really recommend this section's about persuading others, persuading the listener to try something we found interesting, fulfilling, fun, or useful. Um, and so I think it is Jake's turn to lead off. Yep. So Jake, you really recommend building and sleeping in a snow cave? Yeah, or an igloo, or a strange combination of the two. So, dear listeners, I think you need to do this. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you two, Cooper and Chance, both have done this. I have built a snow cave, and I have slept in the entrance because I was too claustrophobic to actually sleep in the body of the snow cave oh interesting okay and chance what about you Uh, i have a rather unique experience i won't spend too long on it because it's just kind of a fun dumb thing but i've never slept on one of these the only thing that i ever did a couple friends of mine we went and built a massive one of these and it ended up pulling like a gas generator in and uh playing some xbox inside one of these Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, no, I have never slept in one of these, much for the same reason as Cooper. I, I don't think there are there are a few people that are more claustrophobic than me. And yeah, falling asleep and, and not waking up with snow on me, it just, it's it was too much for me. <laughs> oh my goodness, you guys. I had, I did not know this about you. That is too funny. Well, listener, if you're not claustrophobic, I think that you should try this out. So I did this, I think two different times and it was at the same it was at a a boy scouts of america uh event where there were numerous troops from the surrounding areas that we would all go up together on a given time pile up a bunch of snow piles so it's not really an igloo i guess it really is more of a cave and then go back up sometime later once the snow had hardened and you would dig out your snow cave that you would then still later go up and basically do a camp out. And we would typically, I think we would do two or three scouts per cave. And I, there was something, and I'm kind of noticing this inadvertent theme. I I hadn't done this on purpose where my first experience I shared was about a snow capped peak away from civilization. And then this experience is building a snow cave and kind of, you know, again, going to a nature experience, but it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was really my first experience of, building a shelter, using what was available on hand. And, and it wasn't like a survival thing. It was more just for the fun of the experience, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, the teamwork aspect of myself and my friends digging it out and deciding who was going to sleep where and making sure you did it at the right angle of incline and up in the national forest. So, yeah, I think it was it was a really fun experience combining that with the campfire and the tinfoil dinners that we made and the stories told around the campfire the joking and snowball fights and stuff it was just a lot of fun so listener i recommend you build a snow cave or an igloo and you spend the night in it all right very fun i cooper really recommend building your own personal computer your own pc i don't know what got me onto this um when I was about to graduate from medical school, uh, I wanted to reward myself with something nice. And I had different plans for different prizes, different things I wanted to buy myself. 
and then I got researching building my own computer, and that's what my gift to myself ended up being. Um, the cool thing about building your own PC is the value proposition is so crazy high. If you want a good PC, the amount of money you're going to put into it is, I don't, I don't know if it's fair to say half, but maybe half what you would have to pay if you just went to that store and bought an already assembled PC. Uh, the other way to view it is if you want a spectacular PC, you can have that spectacular PC for much, 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 much less than if you bought something with those specs assembled at the store. So as I researched this process, watched YouTube videos, uh, followed instructions of purchasing the different components, it was really, really satisfying because I knew nothing about building a PC. I had to learn what RAM was even used for. I had to learn the difference between RAM and storage and what the CPU and the processor actually does to run the computer and how that goes into the motherboard. Uh, this was all new for me. And despite that, I was able to do something with my hands, put it together, assemble it correctly, and the end result is a PC that I've now been using for five years, that even after five years, I don't imagine needing to upgrade for five to 10 more years. Every game I wanna play, and then those everyday tasks that everyone's doing on the computer, the browsing, word processing, uh, photos, projects, everything is so much faster that you just get things done faster. It's just a better experience. So look into it. I really recommend and convince both of my brothers to build your own PC. Yep. I, that's one of the few things that I actually do remember because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were pretty much in the, the PlayStation boat as far as what we did for our, our gaming and, and our experiences. And then all of a sudden one day here comes a text like, Hey guys, I think we should get into PC instead. And then not very much later, we'd, we'd all three done it. We'd build our own PCs. And, and I couldn't agree more with what Cooper said. Like I, I went a little bit more budget route than Cooper did, but even still to this day, I, I game far more than, than either of you guys do. And my PC that I built for just under 700 bucks is still five, six years later playing every game I want it to, even ones that are just coming out now. So I, I agree with you on that one fully, Coop. And thank you for that recommendation many years ago because it has paid off immensely. And I would say definitely to echo that, credit goes to Coop here. I had thought about building one for years and years. I mean, we might talk about this more on a later episode, but I was always very interested in both computer hardware and software. But And I had upgraded my own machines with some RAM and some hard drives and stuff up to that point. But it wasn't until Coop took the plunge and, uh, you know, sort of led, blazed that trail to use that phrase again for the second time, I think in this episode that I was, okay, yeah, this is, let's, let's do this. So Coop really was. And I think that we've all similar to what these two have said. My, I think I might've even gone a little bit less, a little bit more budget than, than chance. I think my finished 
well, maybe it was about the same, but all these years later, it's still going strong. I, I actually use it as my primary work machine for video conferencing, running tons of spreadsheets and so on. So Coop really did, uh, you know, sort of lit a torch and, and guided us into the, the, the PC master race, as is, as is a common phrase at this point. So Chance, yours is, uh, um, let's see. I can pull. I can pull it up real quick. The exact <laughs> way you word, worded it, because I I'm going to quote you. Okay, let's let's hear it. So Chance said, "Killing an animal and processing it yourself." Parentheses elk. Close parentheses. Yeah, I. It's <laughs> you know it's so funny because we've talked already so many times about how growing up on the farm doing all all this stuff this is country boy stuff but somehow in all of that i really never did get into hunting much it just for whatever reason never really did interest me but then you know we we had the opportunity cooper and i uh, just last year to to go on an elk hunt and it was just cow elk tags it was just you know helping the the farmers keep the elk off their their hay during the winters the cows don't starve um, their cattle, sorry, their cattle don't starve, but it was something, I mean, this, I'm going to keep this simple. You go to the store, you buy whatever your meat of choice is, beef, chicken, you know, turkey, whatever you go home, you make it rinse, repeat there. There's no way to describe the feelings of, of gratitude and just, it, it means so much more when you see the process from beginning to end, you know? You, in, in my, you know, I, I take this animal's life and then that, that in and of itself is, is something that most people don't get to experience, but rather than just taking it to some, to, to some shop and having them process for it for me, I elected to take it home, you know, skin it all myself, bag it all myself. I even went so far as to buy a machine to help turn it into, to burgers like hamburger, but you know, ground, like ground beef essentially, but you know, ground elk and this experience in a way kind of ruined me because of how positive it was. I just, the meat for me personally, I, it tastes better than beef tastes better than chicken. And just the fact of every time you sit down to a meal, like everything from start to finish that I am eating or putting on the table for my family was because of my own individual efforts. There was no going to the store. There was no, you know, other people involved helped me helped me anything like that, you know, other than getting recommendations and, and help from Cooper and watching videos, obviously. But, but now it's just like, I, I just, I want to do it every year. And that's what makes it so difficult. I was like this year there, there we didn't get an elk. <laughs> so this year I'm, I'm without the ability to process my, my own elk, but, and it, it doesn't have to be an elk specifically, but just the process from beginning to end just gave me this sense of gratitude of effort for for all the all the food that is just so easy to go to the store and just pick up off the shelf this this changed me forever so i i recommend if you have the opportunity which for for many that that is that is a very few people that do get this kind of opportunity absolutely do it if you have any means to do this i totally agree with the like the sense of gratitude um if you're going to eat meat even if you purchased it from the store, 
you know, that that's a, a beef cow that was raised and slaughtered for the purpose of you eating it. And taking it back several steps to where you have to go into this animal's natural environment and it's you and your instincts and them and their instincts. And most of the time you as the predator are going to lose, but sometimes you win and the end result is being able to, by your own hand, feed your family. That's a really, really cool process. Yep. And consider that this animal that came from your environment, you know, your part of the country, its protein becomes the building blocks for you and your kids. It, that animal that gave its life to feed your family is now building your family and the circle of life continues. I know that's a, like a very broad look at things, but it's a pretty cool thought. And yeah, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude from top to bottom. So our final segment, and we are not as well prepared for this one, um, this weird week. Anything, Jake, chance that stands out, something weird or unusual that happened to you or something, some funny family stuff or a big personal victory? Well, I, I have something from, it was, it's been a couple of weeks ago now, but I, I think this was a good time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I had, I have kind of a, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it a, a soft spot or what, but anytime I, I see someone that looks a bit down, I try to do something for them. So a lot of times that happens when I'm, you know, downtown in a big city, if I find someone that is homeless or I don't know. I'll try to, to buy him a cheeseburger or something at McDonald's or, you know, maybe give him, give him a sweater or something. Uh, this happened to me where I was going to get some gas and I don't know what it was. The tanker was there refilling, refilling the, uh, the, the, the below ground fuel tanks and the driver was just sitting there. And this, this guy looked like he was just the most downtrodden down on his luck, miserable dude. And so when I went in to pay, I just, bought a Coke, uh, a bottle of Coke and walked it out to him. And I said, Hey man, and he, he was actually really friendly. He said, Hey, what's going on? And I said, here's a Coke. You, you just look like you needed one. And he gave me a big old smile and he was very you know grateful for it. And I didn't think anything of it. I just, you know, I try to do those types of things when I feel like I can make a difference, even if it's just a small one, I, I do try to do it. I try to proactively and, you know, I teach, I teach the kids, to do the same. You know, if, if you have the ability to make someone's day or their life better and it's not going to make yours worse, go ahead and do that. Um, but the second part of the story is I don't recall if it was that day or the next day I was grabbing some groceries really quickly for something we were doing here at the house. And I was waiting in line forever, forever. Something was going on with the lady in front of me in line and I just, you know, I, I didn't really have anywhere to be. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't really a big deal to me, but next thing I know, she, you know, finishes her transaction and I'm like, okay, we can get going. She turns around to me and she hands me a gift card that I just didn't even notice she had just purchased. And that's what was taking so long is this random woman I had never seen before was trying to figure out how to purchase a gift card so that she could give it to me. 
and said, you know, here you go. I, I just, you know, wanted to do something nice for someone. And <laughs> I, it, it was the, and it, you know, it was, it was, uh, I it was like 10 or 20 bucks or something like that. But I just thought that was so interesting. The timing of it, it was just so overly coincidental mm-hmm. that I'm just like, you know what that, you know, I, the, the idea of, uh, you know, do unto others or you get what you give or uh, karma, you know, whatever your your way of phrasing it. I think it's a it's a true principle that, you know, a, a universal truth that, you know, the universe, the universe. Uh, you you truly do reap what you sow. And in that instance, it was quite literally I spent, you know, two bucks on a Coke and then I got 10 bucks back at the, at the gift card in that gift card without expecting any of that to happen that day. <laughs> it was just a really neat experience. Yeah, one of those things where you rack up enough coincidences and you stop believing in coincidences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I don't subscribe to coincidence. I really well, don't. Well, Chance, any, anything that stands out for cool, you? Jake. Well, as you both know, I, I spent a lot of time working with the youth as well. Uh, I personally really enjoy it. I mean, I don't think any of us would disagree. I'm very much still a teenager trapped in a adult male's body. Um, but today, actually, I wasn't expecting this to happen at all. It was not planned. Um, it, it kind of comes back to, to, to gaming a little bit because we, we very much formed after a game. But we, we just got this idea like, hey, what if, what if we went and and took this video game, which I, I guarantee it will come up in future episodes if we have further video game discussions. But we, we a couple of us really enjoy playing this game called Rainbow Six Siege. And we're just like, you know what, we're we're sick of playing, though. We need to get out and do it. And and so we, we got a small group of people together with our Nerf guns. And and we went down to the to, down the street and we found a building and and we, we got permission to use it and. And we went, and and by the time we were done, there were sixteen of us there, playing eight eight on eight versus eight matches, um, and and just making this video game come to life. And I, I you know, and and I, I'm just like, man, I am a grown man. What the heck am I doing? But you see these teenagers, who a lot of them, their only world. Because, you know, they're growing up in a time different than us altogether. Their only world outside of going to school Mm -hmm. is video games. A lot of them don't even do sports, certainly don't grow up on farms. Like, that is their life. So to kind of take what they're already doing and enjoying it and then turning it into a Nerf battle and making it real life, I mean, just these, every single one of these kids was just lighting up. It was so much fun from from start to finish and like there were no bad feelings there was none of the the online garbage you get with with the vast majority of online gaming now it was just an absolute win a victory in every sense of the word to just spur the moment hey who wants to do this and boom we had 16 people there and the best part of it for me was i wasn't the only adult (laughs) i had my 37 year old neighbor uh, another friend of mine who I think is somewhere in mid forties and, and, and two of his kids. And then my wife there with me and, and, and our daughter's playing the hostage that we have to go in and save. And she's three in a princess dress. So just an absolute win for me today. It, it was really just dumb fun. And, and it just, and it came out of nowhere. It, it was not planned up until 15 minutes before we did it. So just, just fun. 
Just yeah, I, I don't know how long it would take me to rally that many people together to play like that, but that is impressive. Um, uh, for me, uh, I'm on my hospital's informatics and technology committee. Don't really know how that happened. I think they're just like, hey, you're under the age of 50. Do you want to be a one of our technology committee guys? <laughs> um, and so I said, yes. But one thing that our hospital has offered, and I, I said, yes, I will absolutely pilot that, is an AI-based note dictation and scribing system. And... It's advanced enough that I take my iPhone into my visit with this patient and the conversation between us um, is run through a few algorithms and then sent to a human at Microsoft. And then about, depending on the time of day, a half hour to six hours later, um, I get back on my computer and the complete clinical note is done. So this is, I, I don't know how to describe it to someone who doesn't live in that world. Hmm. But Yeah, that's what I was actually just thinking. Like, I, this sounds really impressive, but I don't really have any frame of reference. So <laughs> most of the time, if I sit down and talk with a patient for 20 minutes, I have to walk out of that room and spend at least five, but sometimes 10 minutes than documenting that encounter. What they said, what I told them, what the plan is, what my physical exam findings were. Um, and now I walk out of that encounter and don't have to, I, I have to spend about 5% of the time doing that. So huh. whatever, okay. you know, pick your second least favorite part of your job and then just overnight eliminate that. Yeah, okay. That's, That's awesome. what I'm, and I, I'm excited. It's working really well. I'm teaching other doctors about it, and it just, but that's what it comes down to. Like, my stress level just plunged overnight because I was willing to pilot this program that's going really well. And, yeah, I just, just take the second least favorite part of your job. If you could just eliminate that overnight, how much more would you enjoy your job? And, and that's kind of what happened for me so far. Well, and I think that's really cool because even in, in your final statement there, one, you have the opportunity to pilot a new program. That is cool. Two, that program is going really, really well. That is also cool. And three, the results of that program are a dramatic improvement to your job and to those who will also reap the rewards of that program. So I mean, that's, that is really cool. That's a big deal. Well, and my face to face time, you know, anytime you go into the doctor, you want the doctor to talk to you, but most of the time the doctor's worried about writing a note as they're talking to you so that your 20 minute visit doesn't mm -hmm. turn into 40. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And so now I walk into that room, I set my phone down. Sometimes I don't even look at a computer screen and I visit with a patient for 15, 20 minutes. And I bet they love that. Oh, yeah. It, it's good for everyone involved so far. So that's a pretty big victory it, it for doesn't, me. To them, it probably doesn't feel like they're 
being diagnosed because you're you're scribing stuff down the whole time. You're just having an interaction with them. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, well, that wraps us up. Awesome experiences, high honors. I really recommend this weird week. We went through it all. Thank you for being prepared, Jake and Chance. Anybody that's listening, please make suggestions. I don't think we're going to run out of topics, but if there's something that you want to hear from us, something that you want us to rank, or an awesome class of experience you want to hear about, you know, a time you felt this, a time this changed for you, please make those suggestions. Um, we'd love to hear your feedback. Jake, Chance, anything to close? Nope. Thank you, Cooper. Chance will now sing our outro music. <laughs> in, in future episodes. Have a good week, everybody.